Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Own the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, January 21st. This is the 50th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Now, yes, you heard me right. I said 50. Woohoo! <laughs> so, how does one celebrate 50 episodes? Well, I brought 50 flavors of jelly beans, of course. So, if you hear us chewing, that's what we're doing. We're enjoying our 50 flavors. Now, my guest today is a true behind-the-scenes guy, and I will introduce him in a moment. But first, as I do in every show, I will start with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speedrun game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. Today's tip is to celebrate the moment and be in the present, not in the past or the future. As I hit this 50th episode milestone... I would like to express my gratitude to Heritage Radio Network. It's wonderful having this platform to discuss our hospitality industry and showcase amazing people who deserve the spotlight. 50 episodes in, I can say that radio and podcasts are awesome. Thanks to the entire HRN team, all of my guests, and listeners. Here's to another 50. That's my celebratory tip today. Now, I'm very happy to have my guest here. It is Keith Durst of Durst Hospitality Group. Keith works with restaurateurs, chefs, and developers to build and maintain relationships and place professionals in well-thought-out working environments. He handles all forms of real estate transactions, hospitality operations, and development concerns. So welcome, Keith. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you. So how did you, how did you get into this world of hospitality and working with chefs and restaurateurs? <clears throat> well, a lot of it was ac- accidental in a way. Um, I had had a pet care business, which I still have, um, called The Wagon Tail in Lower Manhattan and Tribeca since 1997. And, uh-huh. um, yeah, and uh, my wife's a veterinary nurse and someone that um, has been an animal lover her whole life. And she had worked for a woman that had owned a small pet care, pet rehabilitation center in Chelsea. And that person and I actually had decided that we would try to open up another one because that one had closed a number of years before. And... One thing led to another, and uh, she, this person actually ended up buying a nice piece of real estate down in Tribeca that was actually too large for everything that it needed, and there were a few tenants that were supposed to go into that space, and 2008 came along, and real estate market dropped, everybody went crazy, money stopped coming in, and ended up with a building down there that was that needing services and spaces, and one thing led to another, and... Um, we ended up opening up a coffee shop there called RBC NYC, which was a very beautiful little curated coffee shop. And the owner of the building got that started and really 
and I helped her get those things going and kind of moving around and learning my way around the health department and the regulations and rules and what you need to do in this city to even get a small coffee shop open. Well, there's a lot of regulations and rules. <laughs> there sure are. And uh, one of the things that we found uh, as you start digging around these things, some things that just don't make any sense whatsoever, and you start digging around and learning the right people to talk to. And, and then after that came about, um, the next thing was like, well, let's open up a bar. Let's figure out a way to do that. And uh, a bar came about called Compose. And ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I remember Compose. Compose was short lived, but uh, a fun place. It was supposed to be a really cool cocktail bar, and there was a chef that was brought in named Nick Curtin. Uh, who's terrific, who's actually living in Denmark now for the few years. And a general manager that Nick brought in named Eamon Rocky, ah. um, who's now the general manager of Bethany. Bethany. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that just didn't work out. It didn't work out because it, it started to turn into something that it wasn't. But again, went through the regulations and rules, and now this adding alcohol into the mix and learning out how to do these things and building it out, and especially in a very challenging environment in Tribeca that it was. So you start putting pieces together and starting to understand the industry and how these things play together. And you start to get a general knowledge of how things work. And working with a person that owns the space and that owns the the business and has certain level of demands, whether they be reasonable or unreasonable under certain circumstances, and it changes your perspective into understanding how things have to get done in timely fashions and different ways of handling it. And after the demise of Compose, the... The next thing was this person, the owner of the space, she, she really wanted to have a very elegant restaurant uh, built into this space. And she started a chef search uh, with general manager Eamon Rocky and that I was involved in. And I think she hired, if I remember right, I forget her name, she hired a, a headhunter to find a chef to come in and really build a great restaurant. But I had a neighbor, I still do, whose name is Toby Noble. He lives two doors down from me in my building. And everybody uh, lives in your building. Everybody lives in my building. I've got great people in no, my No, because I know Kathleen Squires, who yeah. came on my show. Yeah, she's great. She lives right down the hall from me, too. Yeah, I know. I remember yeah. when we discovered that yeah. you were in the most happening bil- building. It's a great building. Paula in the West Perlis. Perlis. Paula Perlis. Yeah. She's fantastic. <laughs> I don't know anyone that doesn't love Paula Perlis. I mean, she is terrific. Um, yeah, they all live on my floor. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, so we all do. We <laughs> talk about food and industry. and It's funny. We run into each other in different restaurants and different places. And uh, following Kathleen and what she does around the world is just crazy. Try to keep up with what, all that she does. And Paula, too. I mean, Paula's just... I mean, she just brings happiness to everybody in that building. So yeah. she's just great. Good people. Yeah, good people. And um, so we've got a lot of great food people. And Toby, literally, I mean, as a as a job at this point his job in life is basically traveling eating dining making notes you know logging things and knows more about food and chefs than most people know in the city and toby kept saying to me there's this guy out in oregon and man he's way ahead of his time and somebody should go talk to him and toby's like well and i said to him you know i'll mention it to the owner and see what they think and I mentioned uh, I mentioned his name to her, and you know I don't think she seemed all that excited at the time. And Toby kept pestering me and kept saying, "Listen, this guy Matt Leitner, he really knows what he's doing. I mean, he's he's going to be a superstar, and somebody should go out and talk to him because the other names that were being bandied about, they were good chefs. They were all nice, nice and good, solid chefs. And um, and so Jody and Eamon went out to Castagna where Matt was cooking, mm-hmm. and they had dinner out there. And and I remember. When she got back, the first thing she said was to me was, just hire this guy, whatever you have to do. And she left it up to me to negotiate a contract with him and try to convince Matt to come to New York. 
I was just going to ask. He wasn't planning to come to New York. No, Matt. Before this. Okay. In Matt's mind, I think I think if you ask him, and, and, I, and, and I, I care about Matt a lot, and I think if I sat down and said to him, you know, I think at some point he had in his mind that it would be New York. I mean, he's a West Coast guy, or actually a Midwestern guy that ended up on the West Coast. But, um, you know, I think he always wanted the challenge of New York. And coming to, I remember the first visit he made to Compose, and he's sitting in there looking at this place, and it was maybe 500 square feet. And there was no kitchen downstairs like there is now. And there was no other services in the building for, for cooking. And I remember Matt just saying, this is just, no way, this is a mess. This, how can we do this? We're going to have a counter in here, and we're going to try to do this. I mean, I'm going to come to New York. I want a restaurant. I want a real restaurant. But there's only so much you can do. Space is tight, and um, there were a lot of promises made to him and, and a lot of things that he thought that he'd be able to do into the future and, and do some great things. And, you know, Matt made some real promises, too. You know, Matt said, I'll get two Michelin stars. I don't care where it is. I'll get three New York Times stars. I'll get reviews. I'll get people in. I'll get these things done. And, you know, Matt did. I mean, I think within six months, he had two Michelin stars out of a 500-square-foot restaurant, three New York Times stars, and four New York Magazine stars. So It's amazing. I mean, it's pretty incredible. This is a Terra. This is a Terra. Yes, Yes. and I... I did dine there once, and it's a very special restaurant. It really is. Yeah. And Matt's, uh, he's an extremely talented guy. And, uh, and I, I'm excited to see um, all that comes for Matt's future and, and what comes for the Terra and everything else like that. But my relationship with ownership at that time was not so great. Um, there had been a, a little bit of a breakup with the general manager and the relationship with the owner. And there was, there was a lot of change at the time. And I had been working with Eamon for a number of years, the GM at that time, even before I knew Matt. And then an opportunity came for me to leave and open up ASCA. Um, with Frederick. With Frederick, yeah, with Freddie. And uh, I find Freddie to be like a, another really talented guy and very soft-spoken, uh, very demanding person in terms of his skill set and what he wants and how he, how he foresees where he wants to be and and someone that has just unlimited potential. I mean, Freddie, again, I think he's, he's this guy that has tremendous potential. And unfortunately, we were only able to keep Aska going for a short period of time. There was, it was just, it, was, it wasn't really the right fit. Because we had gone into business with the guys from Kinfolk Studios. Because mm-hmm. Frey was there and Freddie had worked there in the past. And, you know, those guys had a specific feel and way of doing things that they felt comfortable doing. And... You know, Freddie, that really wasn't who Freddie was. And my background at that point, the time I'd spent, was looking for fine dining or tasting menu and better option and really a destination-driven thing. I was more concerned about building the brand, building a destination, building a reason for people to be there. And it just didn't really mesh too well with the kinfolk guys that were more concerned about the neighborhood, people not not enjoying what it was that Freddie was offering, whereas I thought that everyone was really enjoying what Freddie did. Well, it was a destination restaurant for me, and I think in Williamsburg, which has developed so much over the past few years, but it was one of the first higher-end restaurants that I remember. And I think it gave people a reason to come to North Williamsburg. I mean, the White Hotel is there, Mm -hmm. and obviously they do what they do so well. Um, but to have an, an outlet for real food, real fine dining, 
and one is working to, to achieve a Michelin star in the back of a bar tells you and if you saw the kitchen Freddie cooked out of there it tells you just what type of demanding um, situation that he put in place and, and, and the amount of love and energy that Freddie put into that place it's really unbelievable so so yeah. what was what was your role with ASCO with did you find the location did you well, no, not really. I didn't find the location because Freddie had been doing a pop-up there for a while. Uh-huh. And our goal was really not to be there. Our goal was <laughs> to go someplace and get a permanent home with a permanent restaurant. And as we started doing that and started talking about fundraising and, and ways to do this and how much money we were going to put into this, and it was really going to be Freddie's first real restaurant. And Eamon was out on his own for the first time kind of thing. And this, again, for me... I didn't have um, financial support like I had working with um, in Tribeca. So for me to go out and start having to do things, we wanted to keep the financial raise as low as possible. Um, And we were able to basically shoestring budget, get ASCA open for under a quarter million dollars, which is in New York is just shocking. But we wouldn't have been able to do that anywhere else except unless we stayed at that location. So my role was kind of was to put the whole place together, get it built, get it operational for Freddie, help with the staffing, help with getting everything organized, um, making sure that everyone was kind of on the same page. And, you know, unfortunately, as ASCA opened, there was per- some personality conflicts and some things that just weren't working out with some of the team members. And we tried to hold it together the best we could. Uh, we moved some other people in after Eamon left uh, to do Betney. I was fortunate enough to bring a person that, that on that Eamon had introduced me to a long time ago and someone that I felt really comfortable with, Shiraz Noor, who went on to work uh, as a GM at Perry Street with Cedric. Oh, um, okay. And who's now actually started his own company. And I don't want to get it wrong, but one of the products that he's making is yogurt and some other things. And really sharp kid. really. And I say he's a kid because he's 26 years old now. He's a kid. He's a kid. <laughs> and uh, he showed up for work in Williamsburg and... Uh, he had been a CIA grad and been through the EMP training, and he didn't own jeans. So, so Shiraz had to go out and buy jeans to to work at a Michelin <laughs> star restaurant in in Brooklyn, which was fun and funny. And uh, but it was really a challenge because the the guys that were there, they had a way of thinking. They know what they wanted to do, and really, my job became a management between keep trying to keep the restaurant and the bar working together and being happy and. We were able to do it for some time, and we owe a great regret, uh, a great uh, debt of gratitude to um, to Bon Appetit magazine, really, and and Matt Ducker. Matt Ducker. Oh yeah, yeah. Matt Ducker. I mean, um, he's one of my favorite people um, in the industry when it comes to when it comes to being able to take so, a small little hole in the wall like Aska, really champion it, and and really get behind it, and the whole Bon Appetit team. Um, really see something beautiful and wonderful and the skill that Freddie had and what we were trying to do at ASCA. And once we got on the Bone Up hot list and doing that and Michelin and, you know, we were doing really nicely there. And I thought that even everyone's differences aside, it felt like, how can we not just keep this going? And it just, you just couldn't do it. it the differences were just too strong and the personalities were just too different. And it just goes to show you, even with a low investment and even mm-hmm. with making the returns were like approaching 20% at a place like this, which is terrific. Uh, you still just can't keep some things going in the right direction. So I know Freddie's hoping to reopen ASCA sometime soon. And uh, I told him, you know, I'll provide whatever support I can. I, I want to see him succeed. And ASCA is a very special place to me because I think it did a lot to 
really enter me into the hospitality industry and, and give me enough credibility to be able to say to people, hey, I know how to open up a really high-end place, but I can also get a place up and running um, within, you know, within bounds and within boundaries. And, and I think that did a lot for me. Yeah, so. absolutely. Okay, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. And this break song is called Anxieties by The Landing. back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Keith Durst of Durst Hospitality Group. So, Keith, what are, let's talk a little about the World Financial Center, because I know you, you're involved in that, and sure. I think you have some more information than yeah. what I know. Um, okay. Um, so, the World Financial Center, so there's two big downtown projects going on right now. World Financial Center, which has been renamed Brookfield Place, um, <laughs> wonderfully. And the World Trade Center, um, which is owned by Westfield, um, and they have malls all over the world. And the ones in London and their White City and in their suburban London have really, really done incredibly well with hospitality. Um, so if we want to talk a little bit about the World Financial Center first, where Brookfield Places and Hudson Eats. And, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's unique because you have Hudson Eats, which is the food court that Avrico Hospitality actually designed and built. Oh, they did? Yeah, so Avrico was the group that built... Um, that did the design for Hudson Eats. They also did Gotham West. So they designed the Gotham West nice. um, food hall, too. So they're really they're, kind of expert now with um, designing food halls. And they're both really cool spaces. They are. They are. And uh, and I really love the group there. Um, Christina O'Neill, again, she is just fantastic. She's the KO from Avrico. And I don't know anybody that works with that group that doesn't you know take away and say, wow, you know, working with Christina and William and Adam and the whole group there, they really... They get it, you know, and I think that they really can take a space and really make it feel like it, like you'd want it to feel, especially in an area that's so tough, like the creating the World Financial Center and turning it into a food hall. But um, it's it's what's happening down there is tremendous. Yeah, yeah. So the the World Financial Center and what's gone on down there. So there's one last kiosk that's opening. Um, it's a group that's uh, owned by Yunnan Kitchen, which is um, Erica and Duran, and uh, Duran with Susser Lee's. Chef de Cuisine, and so really good background between uh, those two, and, and they're getting ready to open Northern Tiger there, and if I'm not sure, it might be this Friday, so that'll be a nor- that'll be a, um, a dumpling Northern Chinese fare, and that'll round out um, the Brookfield offerings in terms of the food court. 
Nice. I recently yeah. went to Union Kitchen, and the food was phenomenal. Terrific. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. They're great. They, they run a great job. And then there's a few more restaurants that are coming in, too. So Robichon uh, is reopening into the World Financial Center, a, a very large, interesting space it's going to be. And then you have Jose Garces bringing his first restaurant from Philadelphia into um, New York. Which, which is exciting. Should be interesting. <laughs> it should be interesting and exciting. Yeah, I like Jose. I, I, I think so too. Yeah, and I think if I'm not mistaken, I think actually Avrico's doing the design of the Garces restaurant um, too, which is you know I, I kind of I, I really lo- put these things together because I think when you find like a really good design team, I think that really helps a lot. Someone that's familiar with the space, Parm is going to be opening there too, and then I think they're still trying to locate and find a, a, the right steakhouse to go in there, and I think that that's what they'd like to do to kind of fill out their space and all that competes with Goldman Alley across the street there uh, with North End Grill and with uh, Stephen Starr's Alves and that whole group so there's really a tremendous volume of food there's Shake Shack over there and all that stuff Mm -hmm. so there's lots and lots going on food wise in the World Financial Center and now the people are starting to come into the Trade Center and it's like okay what are we going to do and so the Trade Center has Italy coming in so it's 41,000 square feet that they're going to have the entire an entire floor in World Trade 3 I think it's 41,000 square feet. So it's going to be massive. Um, And then they're going to have all kinds of retail and some dining options in there. And then they'll have more restaurants as more of the different places, towers open up later. And then you have what's really cool is the new Fulton Street Station right across the street. Uh, It's one of the most beautiful transit stations you'll ever see. Between that and the Oculus are two, like, stunningly beautiful buildings. And um, they're going to have two restaurants in over there. And... One of them should be some, something really fun and interesting that I'm kind of working on, and I get announced pretty soon. And then, uh, you know, that's really changing the complexion of the whole downtown market at that point. Uh, you have so much, so many more people moving in, and now you're going to have a reason for people they can do something down there. It's not just dark at five o'clock and everybody goes home. And it makes it into a total destination. Exactly. There's there's a lot of places to dine at once all this opens. There will be, <clears throat> and there's going to be you know, half a million people a day coming through that Oculus. So you need to have a lot of different options for them to go and be able to eat and and shop and do different things. Yeah, Yeah, well, I'm excited to to check that out once it does open. Let me ask you the question I have from last week on my episode 49. My guest was Nicole Catronio-Jolly. She's an award-winning journalist, film producer, and digital content creator. She's the founder of How Does It Grow, which tells stories from food of stories of our food from field to fork so she wanted to know since you work with chefs and restaurateurs chefs who are very creative and like to evolve and restaurant owners who have to think a little bit more about the business and might not be comfortable with risk so how do you strike the balance between a chef and an owner to keep them on the same page well i'll tell you at this point what i'm doing a lot of now are working with chef owners so i'm I've been very fortunate in the people that I'm working with that they've kind of already gone through the, all right, I'm, I'm chef, I'm a cook, I'm learning how to do these things. And now they're leaving their groups, starting their own groups, and they're very cognizant and aware of costs. <clears throat> the best people I work with actually all understand food costs and understand product and understand what they need to make the numbers work. And it doesn't even make sense to start going through the process of helping someone find someplace until they understand what they're up against, until they understand what it means to raise money to open a restaurant, how that money gets paid back. 
even after the money's paid back, how you have a partner forever and how these things work. And a lot of times chefs are excluded from this early on. So until they start to get exposed to it a little bit later in their career, um, it's a real challenge. And I'll say that for me, one of the best parts about where I am now is that I'm allowed to work with established people. I'm in, in a position where I can work mostly with established people. Um, whereas having to do a lot of startups and a lot of people where it's going to be their first shot out of the gate, um, which I've done and I do a little bit of, is, is really hard because it's mm-hmm. a lot of time and education and walking through. It's one thing to walk a chef through understanding what an expediter and an architect do and what a what a person that does, a compliance expert does and how why you need all these people to do everything. It's another thing to walk that chef through and then have to go back into the kitchen and say, okay, now let's talk about what it's going to cost to build your kitchen. What's a dream kitchen? What's a real kitchen like? And then let's talk about what you're going to make here and how much that's going to cost and what your food costs are going to be and your beverage costs are going to be. And if that chef doesn't have that person there with them right off the bat, I have a couple of people that I recommend and I say, well, listen, why don't you sit down with one of these guys first and kind of go over your concept and talk about what it is that you want to do and and what you really think that you can do so that once we talk about putting a budget together, if you know you're going to do $4 million worth of business a year, that's what you hope to do out of this restaurant, and it's going to cost you $2 million to open, if you're only bringing back 4% profit, after all, we have a problem. No one's going to invest in, in what it is that you're going to do. So let's try to talk about this and figure out what your menu is going to be like and how we can get it to a 12% profit. And if you can't get to 12% profit, what we need to do to, to reorganize your thoughts in terms of what your kitchen needs to look like, what kind of furniture you need in your dining room, and what the lease needs to look like to support this. So I'm in a good enough position now where I work with enough people that, that have been through the process at least once, and maybe it didn't go so well, but they learned a lot from it. Or they've worked in restaurant groups where they weren't exposed to these things, so they kind of had to go out on their own and pick some things up. And But they're mature enough to understand that you can't just hire wildly and buy every product that you want. And And I'll tell you, one of the people that was really terrific was, was Freddie at Aska. He was able to keep food costs so low. Like, no one would believe what the food costs were with Freddie. Um, he refused to use luxury items. He didn't feel he needed to. He didn't grow up eating uni. He didn't grow up eating caviar. So he's like, this isn't how I learned to cook. It's not what I want to cook. So he didn't include those things. And he managed to find a way to keep food costs. And I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure it's mostly below 20%. Wow. So when you, you know, <laughs> you're right, right? And labor is always the, the real trick when you get to these Michelin mm-hmm. star restaurants. How do you control the labor costs? So the food costs are <clears throat> a little easier to control. And in a tasting menu restaurant, in all fairness, it's much easier to control food costs than it is in an a la carte because you know what you need for that day. and So you can really price things out a lot better and really get things organized. Um, so I think maybe I got off topic a little bit. That's there, okay. No, yeah. you answered it. So mm-hmm. chef, <laughs> chef owner is the key. I think chef owner is super important. Yeah. And um, so who, who are some of the other people you're working with now? Sure. So um, one, one of my favorite people that I'm working with right now is Dominique Kren. She's got an amazing restaurant out in San Francisco, and I'm doing my best to help her find a place here in New York, um, which I think would be really, really exciting. Very exciting. Um, yeah, she spends a lot of time in New York. She loves New York to begin with, 
And she's the kind of person that I feel would be welcomed here in New York very quickly and someone that could really rise to the top of the New York food scene very quickly, too. Uh, her restaurant in San Francisco is is really breathtaking place. And just, it's fun and full of joy and happiness. And that's what she is, and that's what she brings. I mean, she's got she's just an enchanting person. And someone that I think that I'll personally work with going forward as we kind of put a team t- together of people, not just in, in finding them some things, but this actually kind of ties into earlier where we were talking about developments and who you can work with. And for a chef like Dominique, even though she's been with just one restaurant in San Francisco for a, a little bit of time, developers kind of flock to her. They understand what she brings to the table. So having a chef like Dominique around is, is I think it would be good for New York food. And I think most of the bigger developers in the city now would, would, would welcome an opportunity to have somebody like Dominique in the fold with her. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm working with some other groups, too. Um, I spent some time uh, with the Empion group, um, with Alex and Dave. Uh, Chef uh, Stupak is terrific, and I, I, I really love his restaurants. And I just think that he's got a really good plan. He's got a good head on his shoulders. And, you know, one of the things that most people may not know about um, Alex is that he, he really puts his time and energy into every aspect of what goes on in that restaurant, whether he picks the music, he's... He has very involved in all the interior decor and everything else like that. And he's very specific with how he wants things to go. And he's got a good plan. He's got good, smart people around him that, that he knows he can you know, that he can lean on a little bit. And he has a good investment group that he works with, too. Um, so Alex is the kind of person that you could definitely see. He does creative and interesting food that developers kind of look at and say, okay, the guy's got three restaurants. He knows he can succeed in New York. And you could be a really talented guy. And Alex, you know, he went... He went a way that no one ever expected him to go with Mexican food, and he's been doing a great job with it. So I spent a good amount of time with, with that group. And then we mentioned the Northern Tiger Union Kitchen Group. Um, mm-hmm. I have this Sakamai group that I work with, which is a, a really great little Lower East Side place that's looking to do some really fun expansion in, in the city this year. And I think you'll see some something really interesting from them by the end of the year downtown, I'm hoping. Um, I do quite a bit with different coffee groups, um, one of them being Noble Tree. Noble Tree is, that's a terrific group because they do everything from the very beginning of coffee. They own farms in Brazil, and they spend time planting, harvesting, farming, milling in Brazil, bring it over here. They're building a wonderful roastery out in Red Hook. Um, on the piers on Red Hook by oh, Fairway out there. good to know. Great. So the O'Connell organization just owns Red Hook. <laughs> they own all those pairs down there. And they pick and they found some really great people that they love and and that they're willing to rent space to. And they give these people, they put them in a, a reasonable leases and get things done. So he's building a 10,000-square-foot roastery out there. And then his first shop is going to actually open in the World Trade Center where they're going to build a small roastery that they'll actually be roasting coffee in the World Trade Center, um, which has been a engineering nightmare, but <laughs> well, <laughs> it'll be the- really exciting, yeah. That's an impressive list. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I look forward to, to checking these places out. Yeah, 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 I think that'll be exciting. Okay, we're going to take another break here. We're going to come back. We're going to do my speed round game and talk some industry news. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network.
following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. We're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest is Keith Durst. It's time for my speed round game. So, Keith, I'm going to name two things, and you just pick your preference. Okay. Let's okay. Shot. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat in. Wine, beer, or cocktail? Oh, that's not fair. <laughs> I could scratch beer off it, but between cocktail and wine, I, they both, they're right there. They're both on that list. Okay. Tasting menu or a la carte? Who's the chef? There is. That's, that's an open, open to whatever I love tasting, you want. I love tasting menus. I, if you have a great, talented chef, I want to see what he can do. I, I wanna, I'm great about it. I think it's terrific. Yeah. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? I like tipping. Communal table or chef's counter? <laughs> wow. Um, you know, I, I'm not really a huge fan of communal tables. I, chef's counter in the right environment I really like, but for a long experience I'd prefer a seat than a bar stool. So, But I, I'd pick a chef's counter. A communal table is really not my thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah I'm more of a chef's counter person. All right, you're going to like this one. Pig's blood cracker or a Ritz? <laughs> I'll take a Ritz any day. Yeah, that's funny because, <laughs> man, Freddie got so much uh, publicity from that that dehydrated pig's blood cracker. And, and I saw some funny things happen with those things. And I, I never loved it. it. And it's not that I didn't like the flavor of it, which I thought was non-offensive, mm-hmm. I would say. But... It was not something for me that I really enjoyed, and some people loved it. Most people were intrigued by it, and some people found it offensive. So, yeah, I, it wasn't something I liked. It wasn't. I was kind of neutral to not liking it more than I mean, I wasn't yeah. offended by it, but I was. I didn't love it. Well, for me, neutral was the best you could do. So why do it? When neutral is the best you can get out of something, then just to be intriguing. And, and it wasn't that for Freddie. I mean, he saw something in it that he thought was, was good. Um, and I, I'd have to really ask him about it, but it wasn't something that I wanted, and it's not something that I partook in. But it got a lot of press. I mean, the PR angle of it worked. <laughs> It did. You know, the, the PR angle of some of these things, the, pigs, the dehydrated pig's blood. I mean, I I look back at that, I think, uh, you know, I can't believe how much PR it drew. And, you know, as much as, as, much as I didn't like it, I guess if I had to say, you know, would you have wanted him to never do it? No, I, I'm glad he did it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A couple more. Uptown or downtown? Oh, uh, downtown. Yeah. That's not even a question. Yeah, I thought you'd yeah. say that. <laughs> that's, that's not even a question. Cheese plate or dessert? Uh, I, I love dessert, so yeah, I'll take that every time. Manhattan or Brooklyn? 
Manhattan. We were sitting at Roberta's in Bushwick, and uh, and this is the first time I come to Brooklyn very rarely these days. I spent. Uh, I'm a Manhattan person, and I, there's things about Brooklyn I absolutely adore, um, but I'm, I'm Manhattan all the way. Very good. Okay, let's talk some industry news. Great. This I thought would be a good topic to talk to you about. About it was on Eater, and there were a few articles. There was something in Cranes last year on this, but the Eater article was entitled "Commuters Bewildered by Giant Plywood Wall That Replaced Penn Station Fast Food Options." It's about by Marguerite Preston, and it's talking about Penn Station how they've recently kicked out. Uh, 10 of the food businesses all owned by Reese organization mm-hmm. um, and they're you know they're looking to put in some more upscale restaurants uh, yeah. there wasn't that much details as to what they were looking to put in but um, they're taking yeah. action and I think it's good um, so the Vernado Realty Trust is the group that's behind the Penn Station um, choices and not just Penn Station but the hotel across the street and a bunch of other of the projects that are going on directly around Penn Station and even building a new Long Island Railroad entrance, maybe a new Madison Square Garden entrance, making some pedestrian walkways over there and, and trying to really change the whole feeling that this terrible, dark Penn Station food options have been so bad for so long. And I think that they would really like to get some people in there at least one full grade above. I don't think that they anticipate trying to build a Hudson Eats concept mm-hmm. in there that that might be a little bit a little bit more sophisticated than, than what they're looking for but I know and I've spoken to them on a couple of occasions as some people that they would be interested in having there and I think that the people that are commuting from Penn Station are going to start seeing some more fun things there that they really really like and um, even some craft beer shops and other different things there where you're going to start seeing a, a level of option go at least one group up I'm not sure how long it's going to take They've had plans for a long time to do a lot of different things, and with the new Amtrak station being built and Hudson Yards connecting, I think that there's just a realization that if you don't improve and upgrade these things, that people will immediately find every other option in the area, and it'll be... It's already... I mean, (laughs) what is it going to take? What would it take for you to eat at one of those stalls that's not there now? Well, I I mean, I think this is is great news because... (laughs) You walk through Penn Station, yeah. and then you walk through Grand Central Station, yeah, yeah. and it's black and white. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's just it's just kind of kind of grimy in a sense in Penn Station. Like you don't like you you don't want to hang out. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> it, it's like you, you walk through the wrong hallway in Penn Station. You're alone, and it's dark, and it's got like an eight foot ceiling. It feels terrible, right? Yeah, it's a bit of a maze. Grand Central. I think Grand Central. You know, we didn't really get a chance to talk about this too much, but Grand Central is really tricky. Because Grand Central is what's called an RFP. It's a request for a proposal. So it's one of these only plans that's really blind bidding. So as much as, you, as much as Grand Central would even like to even do better with some of their food options, and I know they would, um, people have to actually bid blind, basically, on those spaces. And the numbers per square foot over there you know, are fairly staggering. You know, some of the places, the soup place that's in there, you know, paying in excess of $600 a foot rent and some of them going up and be willing to pay 900 or or $1,000 a foot rent to do these things. And you still don't know if you're going to get it and there's design fees. So with Grand Central, it's really tricky because of this bid for bid for space kind of thing. But um, Penn Station, they have control. 
Okay. So they can they can curate it. So if they really put their mind to what they're doing down there and they, they, they pick a path, they can have it. And, you know, you have to remember these leases are 10, were 10 or 12 years and different things down there. So as they come due now, they, they've decided that it's time to upgrade. So. Yeah, well, there's also been the trend uh, in restaurant uh, in uh, airports that are, oh, sure. you know, yeah. revamping their... What's going on in Newark is crazy. Yeah, yeah, Newark and, and JFK and all the, yeah. you know, they're all doing it. So it just seems to make sense. And healthy, yeah. fast, casual has become a trend, too. So There's a great shop in Grand Central called The Beer Table. It's this little beer shop. And um, they sell, they have regular customers that come by there that just buy a beer, like a little craft beer. It's The store is maybe 300 square feet. And you can go there and you can buy a craft beer and drink it on the train on the way home, which is something that you really, it's even harder to do in an airport. It's even easier on the train. You can do that, grab a pretzel or grab something else and get on the train and actually relax and have a nice ride home. And I know that Penn Station would like to be able to offer commuters similar style and similar type things going there. And I think that especially Long Island Railroad wants to have the option of, of having a higher end service for their for their clients that are coming on a regular basis. Yeah. Well, they have the traffic. <laughs> yeah. I, shocking, right? The shocking amounts of traffic. And then you throw Madison Square Garden into the mix. And when they have games and events there and things, it's like, oh, my gosh. It's, yeah. It's so, busy. yeah. Yeah, they should be able to do something nice. And we didn't really get into how the leases work there. But most of these leases, the landlords really win based on percentages of rent um, that go back to the landlord. So once these fast food places or quick serve places, whatever you call them, once they hit 2 or $3 million in sales, the landlords get bonuses based on 10, 12, 14% of sales going back to the landlord. So it only benefits the landlord in the long run to have a really good product that people want to buy. They make more money. The rest, the, the economies of scale go so that the restaurateur makes more money. So if it's properly curated and you're bringing people in that are commuters and regulars and locals, people that are actually over there together, everybody wins. Everybody wins. Yeah. Kind of like my speed round game. Yeah, everybody there you go. wins. Everybody wins. Okay, we're going to take another break here. I'm going to come back. I'm going to do my solo dining experience. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience of the week. Now, this week, I'm talking pizza. As I went to Prova, here's the rundown. The location, 184 8th Avenue near 20th Street in Chelsea, Manhattan. The concept, authentic Neapolitan pizza and Italian cuisine. Their tagline is 90 seconds to Naples. And Prova means proof, as in proofing the dough. It also means to try. The chef owner, TV personality and cookbook author Donatella Arpea and Sushi Nakazawa Partners. Why did I go? Because I was in the neighborhood and I wanted to try this new pizza spot. My experience. Donatella greeted me when I walked in and I took a seat at the bar up front and we chatted for a little bit. She told me that she had had a long day shooting Beat Bobby Flay on the Food Network as I admired her beautiful long fake TV eyelashes. 
I asked her for recommendations on the menu, and she made a few suggestions. Her favorite pizza was the Satara with burrata and anchovies, and many of the pizzas had unique toppings like sea urchin. What did I get? Well, since I love ricotta on pizza, I went with the Aquilina pizza, which had ricotta, zucchini, saffron, and mint. My take? Delizioso. It was a doughy pizza. It kind of reminded me of Motorino, and the toppings were great. Although it could be seen as a single serving, I ate about half the pie and took the rest to go. The scene? A mix of Chelsea neighborhood men and Italians. Perfect for a pizza with friends. Interesting tidbit? Donatella previously housed her namesake pizzeria in the same space, which closed about a year ago, followed by short-lived Heartwood. Recently, she took the lease back. Her original handcrafted wood-burning pizza oven in the back of the restaurant is still being put to use. Personal fun fact? I also had pizza this past week at another woman's namesake restaurant, Emily's, in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn. There I had the colony pizza and the zucca pasta uh, duck ragu, and both were excellent. The cost at Prava, at Prova, sorry, is $18, not including tax and tip. Would I go back? Yes. Website, Provo, ProvaNYC.com. Prova. Prova. To try. It's a tricky one. Prova. <laughs> I got it. Okay, so yeah. Donatella. Sounds good. So it's time for the final question. Uh, next, my next guest is Peter Orfanos of Orf Media, uh, which is an award winning New York web design and development company specializing in restaurant websites, hotel websites, and hospitality groups. So, Keith, can you ask a question for Peter? Wow. So I think that. One of the things that's so important these days is developing a really good website from the very beginning. And I guess I'd want to know from him how he can incorporate and use uh, reservation systems with the website to make it feel like it's a seamless like it's a seamless event and not just going through an open table event or some secondary website. Is it something that he's starting to develop to go more into a ticketing system and into co- incorporating websites and reservations together? Because these restaurants are now, they all have a reservationist in addition. And I, I think so much time is spent with that. If it can really be done and, and brought back so that the website can do a lot of that work for the restaurant, I think it could be really helpful. So I'd like to know if he's like starting to go down that road and if there's a platform that he's working on. I think a lot of people could be interested in that. Okay, great. I'll ask him. That great. would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> this went, went fast, right? Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> Okay, well, I've been talking to Keith Durst of Durst Hospitality Group. His website is DurstHG.com, and his, I know Instagram is Keith, at Keith Durst. Mine is at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry, at Heritage underscore Radio. My Facebook page is All in the Industry, and my website's BayerPublicRelations.com. If you miss a live broadcast, you can always find us archived on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are on Stitcher and iTunes. Thanks to my engineer, Jack, to Keith, and everyone out there listening. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next Wednesday at 4 with another live show of All in the Industry. Hope you'll tune in then. Stay warm. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Everybody.